my name is Amy Liu and I'm the CEO and founder of Tower 28 Beauty. And what I love about beauty is that it is my community. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Beauty is Your Business. I am Jessica Quick, your co-host, and this episode, we are buzzing about clean and accessible beauty for sensitive skin. I recently was chatting with Denise about how I felt like my skin has been changing, has become more sensitive. And in doing some research in it, I found a study on NIH.gov about the fact that 46% of Americans suffer from sensitive skin. And that study was released in 2011. And then I came across another one in 2019 that actually had the rate at 60 to 70% of women worldwide and 50 to 60% of men at any given time suffer from sensitive skin. I found it fascinating, really not just the sheer number of people, but the fact that it's growing, that today more people are suffering from sensitive skin than even five years ago. And I know, Denise, you were sharing some of your thoughts too, but I mean, you're on an airplane all the time. You're in different climates constantly. It's definitely a situation that's affecting more and more people. I definitely can say about my own skin, I did not used to be sensitive. And then something has changed, whether it's age or environment or travel or all of the above. I have become sensitive. I wasn't always sensitive. So I think that today's topic is going to be really fun. And I know that I'm going to even get something out of it. Absolutely. We are really thrilled. It's such a topical conversation. And we've been waiting to chat with Amy Liu, our guest today. Hey, Amy. Hi, how are you? I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Oh, thank you. We have been looking forward to this conversation. And for our audience, Amy, as the CEO and founder of Tower 28 Beauty, has actually had a long history in beauty. This is not her first beauty company. Starting out at L'Oreal and moving over to Josie Marin, Smashbox, you've been at Kate Somerville. You have a great resume in this industry. And then it looks like you took a little bit of a hiatus out, and then you came back with your own brand, Tower 28. And when Tower 28 hit the scene in 2018, and Denise and I started noticing it, we love the beachy vibe of it. It had this very cool, inclusive feeling to it. But the price point and this clean, accessible beauty standpoint was super interesting. And so we're excited to have you today and really start to understand, if you don't mind, walk us through what was that catalyst? What made you step away from the industry and then come back with your own brand and why a clean brand for sensitive skin? So yeah, I think you actually did a pretty good recap of my background. I worked in beauty for a really long time. I did take a quick hiatus or not that quick. I took about four years where I stopped working full time. I had my third child and I just consulted at that time. So I worked for a bunch of indie brands here in LA that were digitally native, which is also pretty exciting and fun. And then I launched Tower 28 in 2019. And the impetus, just to bring you back, is yes, I've had a long career in beauty as an executive, but even longer than that, I've had a really chronic issue with eczema. So since around the time I would say I graduated from college, I've had an ongoing If anyone has eczema, the things that are really frustrating about it is that it is chronic and there is no solution for it. So 
If you go to see a doctor, there's very little that you can do. You can soothe it, but you can't really fix it. And I think that's pretty frustrating to hear. As someone who was a beauty executive, I really felt like a little bit of a fraud, to be honest with you, because I think you're selling products that are, you know, it's aspirational beauty. It is the next skin perfecting cream. It's all those things. But at the same time, I had this really troubled skin myself. You know, I always equate it to the same way, like if I was a hairstylist and I had a really bad haircut, would you feel a little more trepidatious about what I was saying, right? And I really felt so self-conscious about it. So for me, my eczema was on my face. It was around my nose, primarily dry patches, redness, painful, and sometimes even oozy. And I would get on my hands and my face and it really bothered me. Also back when I was at Josie Marin, which was 2012, I would say, and she was really a pioneer in clean beauty and clean beauty at that time really meant how natural can we make it? Like we put on all of our packaging, 98% natural, 95% natural, whatever it was. I tried to make the switch to clean beauty because So much of that was what I was in. That was my headspace. That was what we were talking about so much. And I thought, okay, if this is going to be safer for my skin, then hopefully for my sensitive skin, it will also be better. On top of that was when I started having kids and I started becoming more aware of like, kind of like food, what I was putting on my skin and what was going into my bloodstream. I started really thinking more about because I was pregnant for the first time. And it's funny, in the beginning, you started talking about how sensitive people have become and how it's growing. I think that it is really similar to what we've seen in food. Like growing up, I don't know about you, but I had very few friends that would talk about being gluten intolerant or dairy intolerant and those types of things. But I think now we have so much more. I don't know if it's awareness or if it's environment, like you said, but whatever it is, it's real. People really do have these reactions, right? And so basically to go back to your question in terms of the impetus, I started really thinking about like after being in the beauty industry for such a long time and understanding how competitive it is, I kept waiting for someone to come out with something that would really fix my problems, right? Like I kept going to Sephora and being like, listen, I have really sensitive skin and I want something that's clean. What can you offer me? And it's really actually pretty hard to find that intersection of those two worlds. Things that are clean are often in absence of having fragrance, they are filled with potentially botanicals that could be irritating because they're really active and, or sometimes it's essential oils and essential oils in lieu of fragrance can also be very irritating depending on your skin type. I mean, I would in general say that like, it really depends on how, what your skin barrier is like, but for me, it was sensitizing. Then I looked at the products that were safe for sensitive skin. And frankly, it felt so clinical in its approach. It felt like something that I didn't want to have to be my only option. I wanted to not have something that was just, you know, made me feel like a patient every day, I guess is really what it was. And so I thought like, if I could solve this problem that I'm having, which was really that intersection of safer, sensitive skin and clean. And then I wanted to be able to offer products that had a lot of value to it. Like knowing in my background, how expensive, like when you're looking at cost of goods, how much of that gets portion to your package versus to the formula, to everything else. I was like, I really feel like I could offer something to the customer because I felt like clean specifically at that time, and it's changed a little bit, but back then clean was quite expensive. And so my goal has always been, how can I add more value to the customer, give them something truly high performance where they don't feel like they're making a trade-off and have that intersection of safer, sensitive skin and clean, but also be at that entry level price point in a prestige environment. 
And that's really how Tower 28 was born. So there are a lot of people that are working in the beauty industry. We have to all agree to that. We definitely know that there's just a lot of people in the industry. But the idea of starting your own brand is a risk. Let's face it. It is a risk. And I've heard you talk about this before. And I do think that your point of view on this topic of moving from working with an established brand such as L'Oreal to then coming to the front of the business and being that owner entrepreneur while raising three kids. I would love to know kind of what the real catalyst was beyond your own skin. I mean, one, I've always wanted to do it. Being an entrepreneur is this thing that I've always kind of had in the back of my head and kind of really romanticized. My father was an entrepreneur and I think I grew up having really two role models, right? Like my dad had this risky career and he felt all the things and I saw his highs and lows. And he always told me, you know, this is me trying to fulfill my potential. And then I had my mom who had a job and she went there every day and she came home at the same time every day. And she really never talked about her job, but it was like a salaried role. And I think seeing those two examples, I was like, that's the one I want. I want the one where I feel it, I see it, and it is something I'm so passionate about. Truthfully, all of the jobs that I had was with the intention, like if you look at my career path, essentially I went from bigger company to smaller company, but every time my role kept getting bigger. I did that intentionally because I really wanted to know what it was like to be a founder. And I wanted to know what it was like to have a seat at the table. And I was priming myself for the chance to do what I'm doing now in a lot of ways. And I wanted to learn on someone else's dime. And that's advice that I would give to kind of anyone starting a company now. I think there's sometimes this romanticism that happens in our culture where we're like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg quit college and he did this and started in his garage. And that's Great, but I also think there's a different path that can be taken. Like for me, it made a lot of sense that I not only did I learn a lot on that path, but in addition to that, I built community. And I think that's the thing that really has helped me is even though I don't know everything, and I certainly don't, I feel like I have a really strong community in the beauty industry where I can ask people for help. And that's made all the difference for me. Jumping off the idea of community, because what we really enjoyed when we saw Tower 28 come out was the fact that it really was a D2C brand. It was focused on that digital channel, but really on the community. And so I think I heard you speak back in, gosh, 2020 now, and you had mentioned the fact that building D2C was really important for you in order to get to the next step, which was the bricks and mortar. And that's ultimately when you opened up Sephora. Do you mind walking us through a little bit about that You know, same concept, it sounds like, of building community, first your own, for your own support, and then the community for Tower 28? How did you go about doing that? And then how did you leverage that to open up your bricks and mortar? So I think one thing, if you look at whether it's my career path, or if you look at and how I got to being an entrepreneur, or if you look at even the way that I've built my business, one thing you might notice is I'm actually pretty risk averse. So all of this is really with the intention of kind of how do I walk before I run? And I think everybody comes into the world a little bit differently. I actually really admire people who can, I don't know, take bet on themselves so early. And like, there are other people I know who have put everything on their credit card and now they own their whole company. But that type of risk, I think, wouldn't have been good for my mental state. It's just not who I am, right? Like I, as a person, have never even had credit card debt. 
I come from a family of my parents immigrated to America. It was so different from their value set to even borrow money from someone or have to run credit card debt. I mean, it's just probably the way I was raised. That said, I think building community the way I have in a D2C way or in a social way, and I would say that's actually more what it was for me. It was less about like, how do I make the actual sale and the conversion on my website? It was more, how do I build community and try to understand if like what I'm putting down is what people are picking up? Like, are the products, like, how do I learn from what I'm doing right now? Are the things that I'm saying about the products, like, for instance, our lip jelly from the very beginning, I was like, it's not sticky. The thing I love about it is not sticky. And the thing I love about social is it's free, right? So we just gifted a bunch of people. And by the way, times have changed. We blind gifted people. We didn't ask them for their address sometimes or for their permission to send them. So now I'm almost horrified that we did this, but we literally, me and our interns, we would just go on to people's, you know, a lot of creators have their, on their YouTube profiles, especially they leave their addresses. And so we would just honestly do really basic Google research and we would send people product and then we would watch the reviews and we would look at people, what they were saying on social and are they saying, I've never had a lip jelly or a lip product that was like so shiny, but not sticky. And we're like, great, never sticky, always shiny. Great feedback, <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you for writing our campaign. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you for the soundbite. We're going to go with that. But I think part of that is like you build community because you're like, I want to figure out who loves us. What do they love about it? I mean, my first product run, we ordered 2000 pieces, right? And we had to get a special allowance. Normally it's 5,000. I had to say like, can I please run only 2000 pieces of a shade? Because I was afraid, frankly, I raised only so much money. I didn't want to lose it. And I wanted a little bit more of a proof point. And so that's community to me. And I think it continues to be that for us today. Like we really do read all of the reviews. I'm in the DMs. I'm in the comments. I mean, in the beginning, I wouldn't even tell people I wouldn't sign my name because I was too embarrassed that like, you know, made it feel like we weren't a very big company. <laughs> but like now I sometimes I do answer from me because I think the social listening part of it has been critical to figuring out what is it that people love about us and how do we figure out what to do more of and what do people want? I think as a owner entrepreneur, you build a brand and you love it and you care for it and you nurture it and then you put it into the market. And that is a very vulnerable place to be. Then you have to wait and get feedback, right? And oftentimes what you had originally designed the product for and some of the talking points that you put out there, you put them out there and then you either get the same back in the way of feedback or they come back with something completely different. Sometimes it's even better. So I think that that is really, really wise advice. It's funny you say that because the other thing I always think about is, yes, we, through the process of developing product, it's really similar in some ways to art, right? Like my brother's an architect and he always says like, when is something done? How do you know when something's done, right? Like you don't really know. And in the process of creating it, we do test it broadly. We send them out to celebrity makeup artists. We get their feedback. We incorporate, we work with the labs. But at some point you have to hit go. You have to be like, okay, I'm going to green light this because I think it is good enough. And I think it's doing everything that it says it's delivering on, right? Like that's the goal. But you don't have critical mass. You're not testing it necessarily with thousands of people in the beginning. And so you do need that feedback and we really are paying attention. So then with your 
social listening, and now you've got your retail channel as well. How do you go about building community in the retail channel so that they feel like they're part of the brand? Are they? Is it a pretty easy step from store shelf to your Instagram or do you do certain things to reach out to them? I think community has to happen on like literally every single level. One of the things that are probably the most important to me in life are my relationships in general. And I think about that, yes, with the customer, but also like my retail partners, our vendors, the people I work with on my team. Like it's not a win for me unless it's a win on like literally every level of that, right? Because I think at the end of the day, like one of the reasons I really honestly wanted to start my own brand was because I wanted to choose who I was working with on every single vertical of that. Right. And so I think that's one of the real benefits of doing this. And I want everybody who's working with me to succeed, whether it's with me or beyond me. Like I always tell my team, I'd be, nothing would make me happier than if like, you know, at some point they're doing whatever their dream is. So how can this experience help them get to where they're going? Speaking about it in a more literal way, via the retailer, I think one of the things that we're really trying to do with the retailer is to make the community in that sense happens. Like, so recently we went to Sephora. I hadn't been to Sephora corporate in three years because of COVID. And we just went this week. And so when we went, we just launched our mascara, which is by the way, like bananas. It's like the number one mascara on Sephora.com right now, which is wild. Congratulations. That a brand our size can do that. Like it's been crazy, but we basically went there and we got a bunch of mascara. We got our PR mailer and we walked around the office and we handed out mascara to people in customer service, to people in ops, to people on the merchant team and marketing, people who don't normally get that because I really think community is on every single level. Like people who work at Sephora, I'm going to guess most of those people, whether they do, even if they do operations, they probably like makeup, right? So like that's what's in it for them. And everybody has influence. My approach to community in general is like the social listening aspect of it. And it is also just gifting, frankly, like a lot of what we're doing right now is like, let me give you something if you love it and hopefully you'll talk about it. So I really do believe in word of mouth. I believe in organic growth. And I think one of the things that we've done really well is I think some brands, when you have a lot of, we haven't raised a lot of money, which I think is hard, but it's also a blessing because I think when you don't have as much money, you become really scrappy and that means you're also more creative. And so what we're looking for really is for like people who really love us. And that's what we're trying to figure out first. And then when we have money, then we'll get into like the paid side of it. You know what I mean? But in this first part of it, I think it's really different than the approach of like, let me buy my customer, whether it's through like all these weird promotional type things, or if you're doing it through performance marketing in a really big way. And like trying to have some clickbaity ad or something like that. I think those are, those work short term, but they're harder longer term because they're hard to sustain, especially if you don't have big budgets. So is that what today then, when you look at your marketing strategy and your marketing budget, would yours surprise some people and how much you actually allocate towards the gratis products or the sample products? Do you have a larger amount than maybe some of the other budgets you've worked with? Yeah, I think we probably gift a little bit more broadly than some other people do, because I really do think that if somebody loves a product, they'll tell somebody else about it and that will kind of perpetuate itself. So I, in terms of the way that I think about our spend, like even if you look at our cost of goods when it comes to product, 
we spend as much money, I would argue, as the big guys do or anyone else really on the fill. So on the actual goop that you're putting on your face, but we save more money on the package. I don't do custom tooling. I don't own like the hexagon or these other beautiful shapes that other people have. That saves me money that I can pass on to the customer. So I'm able to offer products at a lower price point. We also don't have like things like mirrors or like false bottoms or bigger packages than we need to. And that's both from a sustainability perspective, but also we're not paying for that extra freight. We're not paying for that extra stuff on it, which I feel like One of the reasons our products are transparent is because it's meant to be a a metaphor, if you will, for like transparency is just how clear you can see what you're getting. Like you can see what you're getting. Some of the bells and whistles aren't there, but I think that what the customer gets is really just a value proposition, a really high quality prestige product at a more accessible price point. So yes, I think we do spend money there. I think you might be surprised how little we spend in like, say, performance marketing. We haven't done influencer in a big, like paid way. We just haven't had the budgets to, frankly. The biggest thing I think that you're asking me that I'm trying to answer is even going back to the Sephora thing is I think some people think of retailers as being a disintermediary to the customer. And I really think of it as a partner. So Sephora has been an incredible partner to us. We did billboards for the first time this year and we covered them with available at Sephora. I don't think of it as like they're stealing sales from us instead of our own website. I think of it as like a credibility proof point for the customer because we're small. We're still growing our brand awareness. I think Sephora has a really strong curation. I recently heard some statistic about how it's harder to get into Sephora than it is to get into Harvard. (laughs) It's so crazy. That is great. Which by the way, as somebody who has kids who, you know, it's going to be applying to college, like that's like a real statistic to me. It's hard to get into college too. So, I mean, I think that that is the way that I approach things is really like, I really try to think of things on a partnership level as opposed to in an isolated way. I think your approach is interesting in that you're taking more of that maybe slower, more methodical approach as opposed to just throwing a lot of money at it and doing a lot of paid advertising that really may not build the community, but it maybe builds sales. So it's interesting because, you know, we talk with brands all the time that, you know, they call us and say, we want to get X revenue fast. And it's usually we want it fast versus I want to build a community and I want to build a brand and I want to build something long-term. And that is a little bit slower in some cases. Well, and I think it requires you to make trade-offs. So as an example of that, right? Like, so we... I actually haven't really spoken about this publicly, but we launched a product that we thought was great. We put it into a Sephora favorites kit and there were 20,000 pieces of it that went out. We hadn't launched it as an individual item yet. Like the plan was to launch it there as an exclusive and then launch the individual SKU. We started seeing reviews for it and the reviews were literally polarizing. It was like, this is the best thing. I love this product. It's amazing. And then it was a one star. It melted in my pocket. And literally we were watching it come through and it wasn't stable enough. Like if you were able to use it in California, great. But if you happen to be somebody in the heat of Texas, it might've melted in your pocket. And so literally the truck was coming to us 
I told our ops person, I was like, do not accept that. <laughs> Tell them to turn around and go back home because as soon as you accept it, it's yours, right? You own it. And I was like, I can't, we cannot do this. We cannot launch this product. Now, the implication of that in an organization that is much bigger and for us is that obviously that's sales, right? Those are sales that we are not making anymore. And I will actually tip my hat to Sephora because I have to tell you, they could not have been more understanding. They were like, great, don't launch it. Let's push the launch. We had holes drilled for this product. So they had given us real estate. We put a graphic over it, which is something when you have real estate for something, it's painful, right? Cause you've set aside, it hurts your productivity. You have sales plan for something that you're not taking in, but it was the right thing to do. So I guess like back to your point, Denise, of like, Being so focused on sales, I think, is an important thing that we as business people have to do because we have to, you know, I also take it really seriously that like I have a team, they have careers, they have salaries that I need to be able to pay for, but I also have customers and I've worked so hard. We've all worked, my team, so hard to create that trust with the customer that at the end of the day, that is the thing that probably drives me the most. And I think that's what these smaller brands have to do. Like a Bigger brand, I'm not saying they're more likely to do it, but they have the ability to bounce back a little bit easier if they do have these moments. I don't have both the financial resources or the trust of the customer to fail this early in my journey. So those are kind of the decisions that have to be made. It sounds like you're very hands-on. There's a very guerrilla approach to really being connected to the consumer, to your product line. I wonder too, I mean, listening to you talk about community and really the way you feel about working with people and building those relationships. One of the things that I really found fascinating was you actually started something called Clean Beauty Summer School. And when I look at that and I'd love to have you, you know, walk us through what that is, it feels so much in connection with all the things that you've been talking about, community and relationships, and really wanting to partner and work with people. So can you walk us through your Clean Beauty Summer School and really kind of how it came about and what its objective is? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking about that because it's something that I'm actually really proud of. One thing I think about often is, I don't know if you've heard of Simon Sinek's kind of, you know, people don't buy what you do, but they buy why you do it type thing. And I've thought a lot about that in terms of what my why is. And I think after all this time in the beauty industry, the thing that I think I can offer is really to make my why really genuinely is I think I can make my little corner of the beauty industry better. And part of that is as somebody who immigrated to America and was born in Minnesota in a really, frankly, a very white America at the time, I didn't see pictures of myself in what beauty looked like or in aspirational images. And as a result of that, I don't think I felt very beautiful, right? Because I wasn't what all my friends were, which was blonde and blue eyed, et cetera. Growing up, I wanted to change that. I thought it was an opportunity that I had as, you know, this is the first time I've had any influence if I'm being honest, right? So I have been a worker bee. I have not been front facing in any way. I was the one who like wrote, you know, Josie and Kate's press answers. I was the one who wrote their speeches for them. I was never the person on the front lines. And I still kind of am not, I do these types of things, but I'm not super interested in like doing like a get ready with me. I'm not going to do those kinds of things. It's just not my vibe, but I do think to myself, if I can make this little corner better in some way, I want to. 
So what happened was back in the beginning of 2020, which I'm sure you remember was at the height of Black Lives Matter, people were giving out grants and they were, everybody was posting the black screen. Everyone was trying to figure out what the best thing to do in terms of being supportive to Black Lives Matter. And somebody wrote me an email through our just like general email that said, hey, are you going to be giving out grants to Black beauty founders? Because Glossier is, and if you do, would you consider me? And I remember distinctly looking at that and I was like so flattered that they thought that I was in a position to be giving out people money because I coincidentally had literally just gotten a line of credit collateralized against my house, right? Like I was in no position to be doing that. But I did write her back and I said, you know, I've worked in the industry for a really long time. I cannot give you a grant. What I can do though, is give you a little bit of my time. If I can be helpful in any way, I'd love to be. So I took a call with her, answered a few questions and she tried to be helpful. And she wrote me the nicest note afterwards, just telling me how grateful she was because I think you forget sometimes how the beauty industry is actually quite small, but also really insular. And if you're not in it, you don't totally know. So it's not something where you can just like, I don't know, start Googling and find out everything, right? Especially if you don't live, I think, in a bigger city or whatever it is, the connections can be harder. So I thought, okay, maybe this is something I can do at a bigger scale too, to help more people. Because I genuinely believe if the people at the top of these organizations are people who are people of color or who have a more diverse mindset, I think that perpetuates into the types of images we see. I think the types of values that we put out there, but also in terms of the products that we offer, right? Because even my own products, it's easier to solve a problem that you're experiencing for yourself than it is to, I don't know, try on a different person's problem. And so that's what Clean Beauty Summer School is. I started texting a bunch of my friends in the beauty industry, which I'm really lucky that I have. And I said to them, like, you know, it's like Kat Chen, who is the founder of Skylar. She was the head of operations for the Honest Company before she started doing this. Kendra Butler was at Alpen Beauty. She was the head of marketing for Dennis Gross before that. So, like, I asked these people who were the profile I was really looking for was somebody who was both a founder and had that mentality, but also had functional expertise in a a specific area. And I basically pulled together these people and I asked each of them to teach a class. I taught marketing on a shoestring budget, which is probably not shocking. And I still continue to teach that class. And then we had everybody teach different classes. And then I found other people to be mentors and to kind of provide like a one hour a week for a 10 week period of time mentorship. And basically we offered this program specifically to BIPOC beauty founders. And that's this year was the third time we've done it. We take 10 people every year. We do a pitch day at the end of it and the prizes are actually pretty juicy. So it's everything from a $10,000 cash prize, which is so generously given by the new voices foundation to headcount gives like a, I think it was a $20,000 this year retainer for their services and they're a third-party educational service. There's a whole suite of prizes that basically are things that you as an entrepreneur and as a startup could utilize to help you level up to the next point. And it's honestly probably one of the most meaningful things that I do. It's so good. I think, you know, the beauty industry is a very, very special place. And while it's competitive in some cases on the shelf, behind the scenes, it's so lovely because Everybody can work together and find their own niche and find who their own consumer is and come together and help each other. So one, congratulations. And two, you know, 
thank you for starting something like this because it's very much needed. Curious, where do you see this going? Because it's been around for a couple of years, but how do you see it evolving in two, three, four years? The business, you mean? Your summer school. Oh, Clean Beauty Summer School. I mean, Clean Beauty Summer School, we're not like the one thing I would say that we have changed is the community, the finalists every year, the class, they asked us to have more people of color in the positions of mentors and teachers. So that is a transition that we've made over time. And I would say the vast majority of people that we have now come in and speak are people of color. Outside of that, I don't think that we're planning on necessarily changing that much other than expanding who the applicants are. So we've had a lot of interest from the UK, for instance. Time zone makes things tough. We do the entire thing over Zoom, which I think is in some ways the pandemic has at least made those types of things more normalized, right? Because one, it would have been a lot more expensive for me if I wanted to do this in an in-person way. I don't even think I would have been able to do it, both to tap into the people who can teach the classes as well as the ability for people to participate in it. What I think is really cool about our program, Clean Beauty Summer School, is I think because it is founders generally who are the teachers and the mentors of it. It's a founder to founder relationship where we're helping people build their business from inside the beauty industry. So it's a beauty industry helping the beauty industry, which I think is really unique. We agree wholeheartedly. And I think one of the things, I know Denise and I, I speak for myself, but I feel like I would add Denise in this bucket is that there's so much collaboration and this network ability within the beauty industry to help each other. And we absolutely love what you're doing with Clean Beauty Summer School because it's very true. It is an education platform in a huge way that allows people the ability to take the knowledge from all of these great mentors and teachers and really apply them firsthand. And it really, it's teaching somebody to fish. I mean, that's totally, it's a massive undertaking. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I mean, my hope really is that if we can help correct for it. So the three things are like education, mentorship and access. Right. And I think there just isn't enough of a pipeline coming in that is helping people early enough. And so that's the hope is to be able to level up some of the missed opportunities that happened earlier. Really amazing conversation with you today, Amy. Thank you so much for the time, for sharing your thoughts and your insights and your own expertise and knowledge. I've learned a lot already, and I just I really appreciate your time. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thanks for saying that. If people want to get a hold of you and reach out to you, do you have a way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. My Instagram, and like I said, I'm in the DMs. My personal Instagram is Amy, A-M-Y, Lou, L-I-U, underscore T-2-8. And then other than that, our handle for our business is at Tower28Beauty. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We've really enjoyed having you and we look forward to seeing what's next for Tower 28. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.